0: Thank you, Shan, for joining me on this conversation. And I am um, actually so uh, glad to be speaking to you today, especially ever since I've been reading on your work and about your engagement with libraries and archives specifically. Mm-hmm. Because as a museum, uh, one often imagines that we have an innate relationship. With the library or the archive, mm-hmm. but for a very long time the conflictorium has had none. With these two, um, and very often one thinks of these three—the the museum, the archive, and the library—as like a trio in the, in what we call the memory institutions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we've always felt like, do we want to go there? <laughs> do we want to go down that road, or not? So, in some senses, for me, this is really. Um, uh, an opportunity to open up all the conversations, uh, especially some that, from a distance, we end up romanticizing. Uh-huh. But um, I know that you have uh, you have very critical uh, positions as well uh-huh. on how that. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. I'm very
1: excited to be here. Thanks for making time for this. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: it's um, how did you get here? How did, where did the interest in libraries and archives and mapping and maps and, in effect,
1: tedious ways
0: of knowing the world come from?
1: Uh, I think it came from just a variety. I just had to talk about my intellectual autobiography with a group of students right before coming here. So I talked about my pathway through chemistry, thinking I was going to go to medical school, ultimately realized that I much preferred my literature classes to my math and science classes then moving into uh, graduate studies and media studies, and doing a lot of work with architectural and urban history and theory and geography, moving into art history for a postdoc. So what I came to realize in retrospect after having all these dispersed or distributed interests is that I really like places where space and information come together. How we design our world, whether that's institutions or furniture, or boxes, or gadgets, to embody the way, embody epistemology. To embody the way we know and how the way we design the world then shapes how we know both our world and each other so that's my very kind of abstract way of providing or p- imposing kind of a, a sense of order on all these really distributed things I've been working on over my career
0: and um, and you do you think that this uh, this kind of calling some of these Institutions, or say, looking at some of some of these spaces or calling them infrastructure in the first place,
1: um, is a productive category more. to offer. It can be. I don't know that it necessarily applies in all cases, but as you probably know, there's been an explosion of interest in infrastructure, in lots of different academic disciplines, in um, public discourse, in the U.S. and other countries about inspired in part because we're seeing the failure and the real-life powerful repercussions of the failure of our our, our failure to maintain infrastructure And the art world, and design world have really taken up infrastructure for the past few years. So I think it's productive in that it reminds us that there are all these systems under girding everyday life and interactions and that make our cities run and make our societies functional or not at the same time there's a challenge that when you use that term um, in metaphorical ways or it becomes so elastic that can be applied to everything same thing happened to the archive you know there was a period where everything was the archive of fill in the blank so it can be really productive to see the connections between all these different contexts, but when you expand it so far, sometimes you do wonder if it becomes counterproductive to make the word, to make that term so infinitely elastic. Yeah, yeah. And
0: and um, what has been the? I mean, I'm also curious because from the point of view of the conflictorium, which in a sense is a museum without an archive. Mm-hmm. or had been for a really long time until the archive only became the things that we have done in the past. So in a sense, we are mm-hmm. just generating the archive as we go along, but it doesn't quite be. We don't have a collection, for example, mm-hmm. at all. I'm also curious mm-hmm. for to hear a little bit about your critique of this elasticity of the archive. When does it plummet with this?
1: Yeah, and part of this has been my critique of it has in, in, been in part inspired by the fact that I not only theorize, work with theoretical considerations of libraries and archives, but actually work a lot with practicing archivists and librarians. I have written about the design of library buildings. I'm on the board of the Metropolitan New York Library Association, which actually works with, you know, functional libraries and archives and museum library and archives in the city. And this the, my engagement with those, those folks, with you know, their own professional literatures, their own professional discourse, lots of technical and social expertise, has really kind of helped me to appreciate, um, uh, I, hopefully I have for, I, mean, I don't think it was a relatively recent discovery, but just like reinforce the fact that um, calling everything an archive in a way diminishes the value that all this professional expertise and these professional commitments bring to the table. So if, if we call like YouTube an archive, um, that really ignores the fact that YouTube has no commitment to preservation, very little commitment to like making things findable, to offering kind of robust description of the items in their collection. Whereas if you go to an archive archive, they're really concerned about things like access and preservation and description and, and the, the ethics of collection. So that's where we have to think about what these professional values are. Same time, though, there are plenty of populations, typically marginalized populations, who haven't had things to archive or haven't been permitted to create their own kind of institutional, recognized archives. So, that counter history is also really important to recognize, too.
0: Yeah. And and while one works with the theory of it, um, what is it in its practice? What does it take? To or at least in your experience, Mm -hmm. what has it taken to build an archive that attempts inclusion? Is that possible at all?
1: That attempts inclusion? Yeah, that is essentially maybe not even attempts, but it is essentially coming from that place. Yeah. This is where I'm gonna reference the folks who work specifically in this area. So people like Michelle Caswell, who is a critical archive theorist who's written some really fantastic books and lots of articles about kind of community archiving, They're also practicing archivists in many institutions around the city, particularly working with like, um, I think there's a South Asian COVID archive, They're kind of black history archives, black art archives. We're there from the very moment of conception of the archive, you're thinking about what are the values, what are the ways of knowing, what are the cultural forms that matter to this community, and how can we develop practices that actually encompass that and shepherd that. Um, so for example, you know, archives have traditionally been material objects that can be put pre- records that could be preserved in a fixed form. There are plenty of modes of culture that are performative or ephemeral or mutable that their standard notion of a record does not apply to. So how do you reconceive what the institution's uh, functions are when you have to deal with meaningful cultural documents or practices that require a different way of thinking about an archive.
0: Yeah. And then one throws in that mix the library, which in a sense makes that conversation even more difficult, right? Because I feel like if one is talking about an archive, somehow there is the space, maybe, to also include what may be the performative, what may come out from a sensorial sort of, practice, what mm-hmm. may come out of cultures, but the moment we start talking about libraries, there is a tendency to think of the written word mm-hmm. and the document per se.
1: That's a historical, again, a very limited conception, just as like, just as archives have been limited to you know, what fits on a box, yeah. what documents, same thing with libraries, but I think both of those institutions are much more than that. So if you look at the long history of the library, all the way back to like the library of Alexandria, we could look at like the history of Chinese and probably South Asian libraries. There, they've often been spaces of, almost like platforms for the production of knowledge. You have events and conversations that happen around the material. So it's just as much about producing new knowledge as it is fixing the form and preserving it on a shelf. In the in a US context, which I know the best, for the entire history of public libraries here, well over a hundred years, They've always been places with community rooms, mm-hmm. auditoriums, places where um, uh, they've collected media in multiple formats, from LPs, you know, vinyl records, to today things like oral histories and community data sets. Mm-hmm. So they've always been, you know, it's kind of a, a joke that I have with Maybe myself. It's not that funny, but if you read an article in the popular press about like the state of libraries today, the standard opening line is like, "Did you know libraries aren't just about books anymore?" Like, yes, we've done that for a while, <laughs> but that seems to be the public conception that yeah. they are about books yeah. on a shelf. But Correct. they've been always about much more than that,
0: right? And and within this, like for example, when I think back about the context that I'm operating in, there. Are two kinds of situations that I can think of when I think of the library. One is, of course, the the kind of excruciating, inaccessible library. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the very same site in a different place with a different kind of intentionality Mm -hmm. um, where you have so many people, so many grassroots people trying to put together libraries in smaller community spaces, Um, or libraries on wheels or Mm -hmm. so many attempts of opening up that, that space and, um, uh, but yet the conversation on what the, where the tension is, is still abysmal, meaning it's not happening so much around where I am, at least where I feel like I am.
1: Mm. yeah. What is that tension that you're seeing? Is it okay if I have yes, please. Oh, okay. Yes.
0: Um. That on the one hand there is. Um. Libraries can tend to be in a language that is not accessible okay. to most people, right? Um, or can have bureaucracies attached. Them that are just really difficult to navigate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, to have a library card
1: is a, it's a really uncommon thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's I, now I understand it's the tension you were just talking about these yeah. different polarities, but. Like, this was a t- topic in my class last night where we were looking at kind of the, the positive and negative uses of ethnography in the world. Mm. And students realizing, like, sometimes if you realize that there are so many gray areas, it can be paralyzing because you don't know how to act. You feel like everything is fraught. Mm. But I think it's also productive and maybe uh, probably a little bit paralyzing, but maybe liberating to realize that pretty much everything in the world is, is full of gray areas and exists in a gray area. So even like this wonderful institution of the New York Public Library we have here, it started through the convergence of multiple private li- libraries, the Astors, the Tilden's, the Lennox families, all re- get returned, all reaping their money from extractive industries. And mm. they were essentially all robber barons, ill-gotten gains that produce these beautiful private libraries, then converged to form this really fantastic public library system. The whole history of the Carnegie Libraries, you know, again, a, a man who, um, Uh, had really kind of questionable labor practices and an extractive industry, again, produced this really valuable institution, um, the Dewey Decimal System, you know, the thing that allows us to find things. A noted anti-Semite, racist, sexist man whose own ideologies are built into the classification system that he's working with. So I feel like recognizing the fraughtness of all of this and there are ways to maybe surpass or, or still work within, this is something that critical librarians often think about, is how do you acknowledge the shortcomings of the system and use them as kind of discussion points, exactly what you're doing here? Like, how do you make a conflictorium around the fraughtness, the white supremacy, the colonialism of all of these systems, and make them an opportunity to talk about and grow from? Mm-hmm. I was really taken by
0: um, an article that you wrote called Fugitive Libraries. I thought that articulation was amazing. Thank um, you. <laughs> of uh, fugitive libraries. Can you, can you speak about it a little more, especially that that imagination that libraries could be fugitive?
1: Yeah. Uh, so this was inspired in part by the fact that I worked with libraries for you know, close to 20 or more years. Mm-hmm. And just as one of these standard tropes is like, did you know libraries aren't just books? people will always say, did you know that they're one of the free, one of the last freely accessible places that are open to all people? Everybody's represented there. And there's often a person of color at the table because librarians tend to be mostly white women. And they'll say like, actually, that's not true for everybody. So I was in so many spaces like that that I realized I wanted to write something that didn't center myself, but in a way used whatever I was writing as a way to give voice and to bring together, to, to quilt together. The experiences and really fantastic um, uh, like activist projects that a lot of people building fugitive libraries were working with and there it's drawing from kind of Fred Moten and other theorists of fugitivity of, of flight instead of the productivity of flight of being on the outside um, so there it's thinking about how we can develop these systems as you are doing that are maybe drawing some inspiration from the standard institutions but Actively rejecting some of their principles as well because they just don't work for you. They don't suit your ideologies. So there, that that the the productivity of being in flight, of being mobile, being a library on wheels or an exhibition that travels, for instance, there's a there's an instability in that. It can make a lot of work for you and be unsettling. But there's also a potential liberation in that too. Yeah.
0: I don't know. I don't know whether it's whether I'm speaking from a very particular experience. Uh, maybe I am. I am speaking from a very particular experience of um, uh, how do I put it? Um, the difficulty to imagine uh, a a library practice while most obviously it's there. I can see it and it has to be grounded in like so much uh, skill and expertise. And um, But I think that makes me curious. Why can't I imagine it? Uh, is it because of the experience of libraries? A lot like, say, for example, hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm making that analogy partly because of maybe a... Experience of positivity of some kind, mm-hmm. vis-a-vis libraries, mm-hmm. or vis-a-vis entering libraries, um, or uh, uh, just uh, so I'm trying. I'm also within within this conversation trying to also unpack my own position, or like how do I understand this, or how, uh, and I'm finding it very. very um, it's incredible to, probably you're probably the first person I'm speaking to who works within this space. Even though I imagine this space as an allied, mm-hmm. as an allied idea to, to what we may consider historical or what we may consider from memory, mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: that relationship. I just want to say like also I, um, I work, I probably am adjacent to this space too. I have studied, admired, critiqued, drawn inspiration from librarians, but I'm not a trained librarian. So I want to kind of establish that I am
0: um, not, I
1: mean, to, to acknowledge and honor their expertise, I have to acknowledge that I don't have a lot yeah. of that too. But this is again I think where the productivity of the term infrastructure comes in. So the, the ability to imagine the practice is maybe part of that in frontness. The fact that a lot of it is happening in the background, that a lot of it is historical legacy, mm. that is creates path you know the term path dependency. So it's like creating these ingrained mm. infrastructures that almost become that become normalized and naturalized. Even you know, in disciplines. Tonight our students were asking like, what is it about it? what is it about anthropology that resonates for you? I'm like, anthropology is like a made-up construct. Like the, all of our academic disciplines are have they historical constructs. They were very different 200 years ago, different 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. They will be very different, I don't know, 100 years ago, especially as technology transforms. And our and knowledge institutions, in a way, reify. Because we have these classification systems that separate out disciplines into different different kind of discrete entities, they are, in a way, kind of perpetuating this fiction that we think of as having a material reality. And it does on the shelf. But this is where the, the ness, mm-hmm. like all that stuff, that kind of c- cultural context, historical context is what constitutes the practice. And some of it actually is literally happening behind the scenes too. It's the sorting of the books, it's the people who are negotiating contracts with electronic resource providers um, who control most of our content anymore. So that's not like active work of people with like bodily um, engagement. Sometimes it's like a lot of computer stuff. It ha- There's a lot of practice that happens on screen. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: and in, in fact, it's precisely those behind the scene, in the alleyway, in the garage, in the back room, that infrastructures are built. Mm-hmm. They, there is a minimal part that is public facing. The making of it happens in these kinds of spaces, and. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm I, I'm curious to hear if in your research within these spaces whether you had entry into some of these uh, spaces of operation or back rooms or, mm-hmm. um, and what have you been able to draw from those spaces that were never meant to be
1: seen at all. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, there definitely is, and if we look at like the history of all of these mythologies about how technology was developed, we often fetishize the garage, the back room, especially Silicon Valley. Yeah. It always happens in the garage. But then, you definitely need, or in most cases, maybe not all, you need state, you need major funding, either state or corporate funding, to make it big enough so it actually has become can become a network that, that reaches infrastructural status or scale. But... Um, yeah, to some degrees, I have been able to see some of these backroom spaces, all the fugitive libraries. You can say that you know those that I visited, you could say those are like metaphorical backrooms where interesting counter-classification systems are happening, where new models of public service are being developed that can suit the needs of particular communities, uh, the sorting of materials. There's a place over in Queens called Book Ops, where the two library systems... Um, uh, uh, not Brooke, Brooklyn and, and New York Public Library, kind of have a, what they call a floating collection. Their all of their their branch library collections like are moved based on demand to different branch libraries. So they have a sorting facility where the, the all the most like this. It's kind of amazing to think like millions of the city's books are are floating through these conveyor belts and being sent out on vans to all the all the two hundred plus libraries around the city. And then the office space, which is in the same building, which looks really boring, like an office, but there we have librarians who are negotiating with these really extractive, kind of billion dollar profit industries that are controlling our access to information, like Elsevier and Taylor and Francis, and all these people who control our journals, our medical data, all of these things. So you have people kind of wielding the power of networks to try to negotiate more open access and lower rates, and. Um, so those are the backstages where things happen that is not fun to watch because it's you know, people typing on a keyboard, but still it's about, it's all about like the politics of knowledge that's happened there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's very, <laughs> amazing when you're talking about librarians. In your voice, they're almost sounding like minor super superheroes and heroines <laughs> <laughs> super
1: folks. <laughs> um well, that's good because I want people to think about them as providing like really valuable, bringing expertise and service. There's also a critique of that. There are especially some librarians of color, specifically a woman named um, Fubazi Etter, who's written about vocational awe, which is this idea of um, because librarianship and other kind of cultural work, um, and I imagine maybe some over the intersects with some of what you're doing too, is regarded as this great public service, and it's almost as if there's a calling for you to do this work. Because of that, um, you it justifies being paid, um, being underpaid, being undervalued, being worked way beyond your job description because we attach this all to the vocation. So this is a da- the challenge or the danger of, of considering them to be superheroes because then it, in a way, legitimates lots of explo- exploitation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, precisely
0: I can also think of it. Uh, it works exactly the same way either in, uh, in art spaces Say, oh, you're doing this as a as yeah. an outcome of passion. Why do you need the money? As a me, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. as a need passion. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, or within um, social justice activism spaces. Oh yes, where mm-hmm. um, the question of money is like you um, are mm-hmm. well, then, of course, imagined as a, as just not doing the right thing. Yeah.
1: I there are lots of like technical communities too, like open source communities where people are developed, building their own infrastructures, their own counter infrastructures, the body of more democratic politics. There it often depends on a really committed group of people who are willing to build the system, get it up and running. But then as it takes off, those people who are then committed, they're kind of stuck there. Like I'm not getting paid for this, and I built this thing that now thousands or millions of people are depending upon. If I stop working on this for free, all this is going to go away. So it's a lot of pressure and stress with minimal, if any, compensation.
0: Yeah. That's, um... I mean, I feel like that's always, um... Like the bureaucracy is really good at using righteousness Mm -hmm. as as a way of limiting um
1: people's full potential mm-hmm. um, I'm just curious how is the Conflictorian staffed like who mm-hmm. works there and um, they are paid
0: yeah mm-hmm. so
1: um, we
0: have a unsaid rule that we work with you no know, like we must pay everybody that ever does anything mm. for us so for example there is there was a almost like a trend or it was a practice that interns come to arts organization for experience and so you are a, you apparently don't pay them um, yeah. and and this sounding to us I think it sounded ridiculous mm-hmm. um, because they come in and bring valuable things they bring in energy and curiosity they might be learning on the job but that doesn't mean they, mm-hmm. they certainly are added value and so they must be compensated so we are Uh, The Conflictorium is a grant-run organization and mm, everybody on the road is paid. Um, um, But again, for a museum which is not a state museum, it's uh, in that sense it's a private Mm -hmm. registered museum running on public money, we cannot afford to pay people uh, for their... For their true expertise or, mm-hmm. you know in any way so invariably we say okay you share only say 15 days of your time in a month mm-hmm. or 20 days um, and also go and compensate yourself differently mm-hmm. but what I mean although that started as a sort of economic decision for us but what we learned over time that that was some like that was one of the best decisions -hmm. That we could have made because while people spent 10 days outside of this museum work, they uh, brought in a whole different perspective because they were spending time either organizing or they were spending time working with other communities Mm -hmm. or other spaces or other cities completely. Right. So it really became like so valuable that people at the configurium don't work there 24 to 7, mm-hmm. but have other
1: lives and other relationships. Also. That's great. Yeah. Well, not only to your point, do they need to be compensated for the expertise they bring to the table. But if you're not paying people, this is a big debate, long going in the U.S. that places like museums and, and publishing often expect people to work for free as interns this means that it's only the independently wealthy. So you're just kind of perpetuating the same social classes who are staffing and curating and, and structuring these institutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I those, mean, those form some of the, the crux of
0: the kind of conversation mm-hmm. that we are trying to have there because it's also the question of what are we going to be able to see if we are... If we are not coming from varied spaces, varied experiences. Mm-hmm. They were, we also know in our critique of cultural infrastructures that it perpetuates um, the repetition of one class and caste mm-hmm. hegemony again and again and whether we want to be a yet another infrastructure that does exactly that. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know this term that is used so often, like-minded, almost as a virtue. You, you know, like as if it's a good thing that oh we are all like-minded here. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think for us the alarm clocks go buzzing if we are all like-minded. Mm-hmm. I think we are certainly a team that's bound by difference, uh, and mm-hmm. I think that that becomes really valuable.
1: I agree. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What well, could be that you're like-minded in your proclivity for or your desire for diversity and challenge, and maybe that maybe those principles of heterodoxy kind of unite you, in which maybe mm-hmm. that kind of like-mindedness is fruitful. But, but yeah. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Uh-huh. So um, maybe
0: let's begin there. That you did bring us the object. Can you can you describe it and tell us how 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 did you come to think of it as a good addition for this
1: space? Sure. Well, um, as you probably know, most people when they hear the word infrastructure, they think of bridges and roads and pipes and other kind of heavy metal material engineering things. But as you well know, through your work in Conflictorium, it's also intellectual and social, and ideally those things are entangled. It's, um, you build this when you have an intellectual infrastructure, it often kind of cultivates a social context around it. And you're building a big intellectual infrastructure should reflect social values of the community as well. So I brought a my, um, a library um, a card that we put in the back of the book. Which, which I don't know that many folks use this model anymore. I just happened to have a bunch of them that I used in my wedding, actually, because I had a library-themed wedding. <laughs> <laughs> but these were kind of used in, like, the place cards and things. But So I had thousands of these things. So I used them as scrap paper. Um, I would have liked to have used, like, a thing that you'd use in a card, a card from a card catalog. I didn't have any of those. So this was kind of a stand-in yeah. for the paper and bureaucratic infrastructures that make the library as an infrastructure possible. So just reminding us that the intellectual, the bureaucratic, the technical, are all integral parts of what makes an infrastructure operate also.
0: Can we think of some of those bureaucratic operational procedural things as human?
1: Yes. Absolutely. So it's often... Uh, humans who um, perpetuate them, humans who shape them. You know, bureaucracy is derived from the bureau, the piece of furniture that a human being sat at, but the, but the drawer is essentially kind of physically embodying the organizational structure that later was represented in something like a spreadsheet or a set of documents. Um, so, yeah, human beings, just as, you know, um, Abdul-Malik Simone reminds us that people are infrastructure, especially for that last mile, of delivery um, same thing like if people are part of the infrastructures of bureaucracy too mm-hmm. as we see definitely in the history of colonialism there's been a lot of great stuff written about the history of british colonialism um in india and how people were subscripted into perpetuating that system and i like that you as part of the, this these conversations being an integral part of the installation remind us that people you and i all those other people are part of the infrastructure of this project. Yeah, yeah, Yeah,
0: completely. Because uh, how does one, on one hand, build an infrastructure and and maybe the the instinct to build it came as much from the instinct to dismantle something. Mm -hmm. But you can't just offer... Or I couldn't just offer dismantling as a proposition. Mm-hmm. That's just not what I guess the society that I am operating in can, that I can afford myself that within that society. Right. So the pro- the proposal of dismantling comes hand in hand with saying, okay, so what is the proposal for the future then? If mm-hmm. one breaks this down, then mm-hmm. what? Um, and so one attempts in with much romance, mm-hmm. right, the building of mm, a museum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes I look back at the last decade and say, Did did I as a young twenty-three-year-old person even know what that what it carries? What, mm-hmm. what is the weight that it carries? That we just went out there and said, Okay, we are going to do a museum of conflict. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes now when I look back and I feel like maybe only a 23 year old person could have done it, Mm -hmm. who was unaware of, um, of its weight Mm -hmm. Um, and the more that the time, more time passes and the more one delves into the museum as an inquiry because you are living with one that you realize that I probably wouldn't, I
1: probably might not do this again. Mm -hmm. Well, this kind of reminds me of a couple things. First of all, just this idea of you know, not just dismantling, but also what can you build in its place. It like, goes back to the concept of the fugitive libraries and the whole concept of abolitionist technologies. It's not just about dismantling. It's about what new things can you imagine to build a better future. And, and this idea of uh, the, maybe the, the luxury of youth not being encumbered with all of the bureaucratic and political things you should be thinking about Reminds me, given the word, the new school, which started out as kind of a, an anti-university. Um, and I, I'm actually thinking about teaching a class in the spring about alternative schools and how we can imagine the university otherwise. Just thinking about the long history of pol- alternative schools and how it's so hard to sustain them. Because um, you also, as you grow, you become more popular. You ultimately realize that like oh my gosh, we need a back office staff to manage this. We need to become more organized. We need a curriculum. We need some documents to, to chronicle what we're doing. And then all of a sudden, like, oh my god, maybe you have become an institution, which is exactly what you didn't want to be. So that happens so frequently to things that start out as kind of counter to an institution. I've seen lots of schools um, yeah. Yeah, morph into something they never imagined themselves, yeah. ours included. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think you've uh, put your finger on a raw nerve there, <laughs> but um, one is uh, cautious and conscious about how one sets out or, or maybe how the conflictorium set out to be not the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying very hard not to use the word alternative. Because very quickly one realizes, and especially within like cultural institutions, it seems like there is a ten year um, life cycle right where you can remain your slightly edgy, you can mm-hmm. remain uh, alternative asking difficult difficult questions or doing things differently until you are co-opted and you also become the norm mm-hmm. um, and so then. Uh, this becomes the marker of um, marker. there is the danger of keep um, keeping without realizing these um, uh, these are very scary yeah. uh, ideas.
1: Well, it's also kind of resisting this compulsion to scale. I mean, everybody in the whole kind of the growth machine, like health, progress, naturally leads towards growth, getting bigger, higher GDP, more, more people interested. But if you reject that as as the as a necessary telos for your organization, because scale often brings a lot of those challenges. If you choose, like, we have a principal choice from the very beginning, like, we're going to remain small for, for all of these reasons, because we don't want to put ourselves in the position of Becoming institutionalized. Mm-hmm. Not that, not that bigger is necessarily kind of yields those problems but it frequently does. Yeah. Most mm-hmm. often it does. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: In in your in your practice and in your writing what sits next to each other is also the infrastructures of
1: media and how
0: they do what they do mm-hmm. um, and in some sense I don't know whether you agree but they are increasingly becoming lenses through which we experience the world mm-hmm. and may not only inform inform our, ourselves of the world but inform the world about who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, is there Do you see a relationship between some of these institutions and how they are interacting with media landscapes
1: oh yeah yeah this was a challenge i had when i was writing my dissertation in my phd program about 20 years ago i wanted to write about the design of a library building this was in media studies and they were saying like what do libraries have to do with media i'm like it's a whole building full of media and it's full of infrastructures that kind Mm -hmm. of allow for streaming and classification and organization and preservation. So it just seemed really obvious to me, but I actually had to sell it to people, Mm -hmm. Um, both through my dissertation and then as I was a junior faculty member explaining what libraries and archives and museums and galleries had to do with media studies. um, There are institutions about the housing and preservation and organization of media. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that's kind of the most obvious connection. (laughs) But then they're part of that larger thing I mentioned earlier, what unifies my work. It's about how our epistemologies are made material. So they can be made material at multiple scales from the design of uh, a, a book, a library card, a digital gadgets, a phone, um, uh, a control room, a dashboard, a data dashboard, all the way up to specific architectures, urban plans. My, my third book was about how cities like at the macro scale or kind of communicative systems and then to the infrastructural scale and logistical systems. All of these we could call media if we think of media capaciously as kind of Marshall McLuhan and others have done, but also they're highly dependent upon information systems and media technologies to, to function as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And,
0: and that relationship has changed since You started first thinking about it 20 years ago. Now that the meaning, the channels, the availability of um, sort of digital technology has come in.
1: Yeah, so some of that stuff was pre- that, most of that stuff was present twenty years ago. Um, there was a lot of kind of breathless theorizing about how digital technologies would render cities obsolete. We wouldn't need our bodies anymore. You know, the fact that materiality would be dead. We'd all be virtual all the time. And I, my, a lot of my work I think was inspired in maybe a contrarian way. But I said, that's not gonna happen. We're all we all still have bodies and. Uh, modernity is not distributed evenly for everybody, that there are going to be people on the margins who aren't going to be networked into the systems. So that's a, probably in part why I chose libraries, because they're one of those institutions that exists, even though, again, people predicted that they'd be dead, killed by Amazon, too. They're still around because they're serving things that are... The populations who aren't reached by Amazon and digital tools, and they remind us that information access is not just a virtual content delivery system about the social context, it's about the aesthetic experience, again exactly what you what the Conflictorium is about too, it's not just about the, the, a recording of trauma or memory, it's about the discussions you're having, the discussions that the records generate into the future and the affective experience of all of it Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: I, I, I also sort of, uh, you know how when one thinks of museum as a category, there can be a tendency automatically to assume for its modus operandi to be an art museum. Mm-hmm. And that automatically changes how we think of the museum or what its role primarily mm-hmm. is. Um, and for the last couple of years, when I'm increasingly, I feel like being... I don't use the word pushed but invited into the world to articulate what is this practice at the Conflictorium and I I feel like in some way I want to say let's for some time not think of ourselves as an art museum Um, but something that might be more accurate or more productive to make draw parallels with would be the science museum. Mm Um, you know I've I've never been to a science museum in the US so I don't know whether they work in the same way but uh, otherwise like in my experience science museums are basically um, installations mostly trying to illustrate a concept a scientific concept so you understand conceptually what it's trying to deliver Mm -hmm. to you how it is done doesn't become a big point of contention. If it could deliver to you the meaning of this then it is thought of as a successful mm-hmm. experience or mm-hmm. an installation. So for example if gravity has to be explained to a 4 year old and a ball has to be moved from up to down in a sort of either really well made re- really well crafted installation or in a fairly basic mm-hmm. kind of installation but that child learns. Um, What
1: that I've then the museum is successful Mm -hmm. in some senses. You probably know we have a math museum here in New York City, which probably might be, I have wanted to check it out so long, in part because I've often been fascinated with like the Charles and Ray Eames Mathematica exhibition that they developed, but anyway, that would be, might be interesting for you to check out to see how like these complicated concepts are made into some type of a material pedagogical Mm -hmm. experience. But I'm also wondering the fact that you've tried to I don't know separate yourself or kind of reject this ingestion into the museum industrial complex. If you could say a bit more about like how you're using the concept of emptiness, mm-hmm. is that a way to to empty out the metaphor or <laughs> to provide a defensive system? Yeah, I somewhere? think there
0: there are multiple things. One is that uh, we are also within a larger art ecosystem are also suffering this kind of overdose of meaning right. right? everything must make meaning and meaning must be imposed on everything where sometimes there isn't. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, it's a, sometimes it's a sensorial response and a sensorial response has its own ways of sitting on the body. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily need to enter out. Our consciousness through the cognitive mm-hmm. there. Now, uh, uh, when can those spaces be activated? If if we we are constantly offering trigger after trigger within a space, then it's it's difficult to 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 actually be able to see yourself. Mm-hmm. So the contemplation also attempts this where we are also clear that I'm not, we are not about to help transform anything out in the world. Um, that if we can even begin to place um, circumstances where we can meet ourselves as participants in the museum and see who am I or who did I turn out to be and what is my role in the conflict.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm you know, instead of understanding it from a sort of historical point of view, from sort of its its sort of details, that the internet can do really well. Mm-hmm. And if you are already conscious of who I am and what my role is, you probably go out and even do that. Mm-hmm. You probably read a book and, and ask the question and maybe, meet, mm-hmm. and maybe meet real people and ask those questions mm-hmm. as well. Um, and I think emptiness in a sense, becomes the doorway through which that's possible, where it's a, you are, you are almost, you don't have a choice but to encounter yourself.
1: mm mm-hmm. That's beautiful. <sighs> just, just your, your um, talk, your discussion of the kind of mm-hmm. ubiquity of semantics, like having to find, meaning and everything reminds me of, as much as I love my partner. Uh, we have very different ways of approaching art. One of the reasons I love living in a city is at least once a month I'll take, keep a note on my phone of all the exhibits I want to see that I learn about through blogs or Twitter or magazines and then I'll do a whole day and just go to 20 or 30 galleries. Sometimes they'll come along with me and his questions is always like, like, what is this about? What does this mean? Like, it's not about anything. It's about, it could be like uh, about craft. It could be about the sensorial experience. It doesn't have a moral, and this is kind of one frustrating thing of seeing art with them, is like everything has to have a message. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I hear you. I understand what you're saying. Well, you asked me earlier how maybe my thinking has changed with digital technologies? I'm just wondering how given that trauma, which is essential one of the things that you're grappling with with the Conflictorium, is exacerbated and archived on like, social media platforms and YouTube, etc. I'm wondering how digital technologies have maybe shaped or have always been a part of the, the infrastructure you've built for Conflictorium. Um, I think for us, I have to
0: admit that till the pandemic one was never forced to engage with the digital I think we really felt strongly that presence like I also say in the exhibition that um, there's very very little that can replace presence and I still hold on to that Mm -hmm. I I don't think digital spaces can replace that but earlier we were most interested in seeing how to build that space um, how to build that counter space also uh, with the pandemic, uh, and, 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 and maybe before the pandemic, we treated or used digital media as a way of communicating what is happening in the physical space. So mm-hmm. it, it, in a sense, was only a singular channel of communication
1: mm-hmm. to say this
0: is what's happening. Uh, because the pandemic took away space from us, Took away the ability to assemble, which was, in a sense, our core. Uh, we felt like that was where we thought from. And not just assemble, but assemble in breath. Mm-hmm. And to think that the pandemic was, uh, as a consequence of the pandemic, what we were most not supposed to do is to share breath. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for the two months after while the museum was shut or three months we didn't do anything mm-hmm. and we were thinking about that Liga, saying, how is it that we didn't do anything that the team didn't even need to say we should do something like mm-hmm. because you're also at that point of time hearing so many museums putting their collections out there mm-hmm. um there's events going on and we were sitting together and saying, you know, do we feel like we have to do this? Nobody felt we had to do it. Mm-hmm. And then a little a little ahead in time, we thought that maybe we don't have the anxiety of being forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which goes to say that maybe our critique of those other spaces was that how is it that if you've had these collections for all these years, that you didn't think of making them public mm-hmm. ever before, mm-hmm. that you have to be forced under a circumstance like this? Um, so, uh, I think that anxiety didn't forget, uh, it didn't matter. Maybe because we also thought that, in any case, the the trope through which we are thought about is always these people don't let us forget Mm -hmm. and it's actually in Hindi there's a very specific phrase uh, which means that don't pull out the dead from the grave unnecessarily Mm -hmm. as a way of actually saying move on and move on without justice just move on it's also important who says move on Mm -hmm only specific positions will say move on Mm -hmm. Um, so the digital space suddenly opened up a whole world where we said "Mm, if this is space for assembly because it is uh, how do people want to use it and can we can we just hand it over so we did a bunch of Instagram takeovers but these were not like these one these one three are takeovers or limited access, we really handed over that infrastructure to and soul and said, If you may want to follow people, unfollow people, you may want to text people. Um, so it's not only just this kind of looking outwardly, putting out content, um, but we really shape shape the content mm-hmm. as
1: you feel fit. Mm-hmm. And those encounters are incredible. Mm-hmm. That's great. This kind of reminds me a bit of my friend and colleague, um, Amy Kamyel, who's a critical disability studies scholar at Vanderbilt, who's doing this project right now called Remote Access, where inspired in part by this assumption, general assumption during the pandemic that virtual connection is inherently lesser, inherently impoverished, reminding us for the for the disabled community, that's in many cases the primary form of sociality that they've yeah. had at their disposal. And it's been a very vibrant functional one so just um, not only capturing these um, celebrating I don't want that to sound kind of trivializing Mm -hmm. but acknowledging this vibrant culture that exists but also recognizing the trauma that comes with um, being excluded and not having access Mm -hmm. um, in the material world in many cases particularly for disabled communities so I think The way that they and their colleagues have been thinking about this has really transformed my assumptions of the lesser or better, the impoverishedness or advantages of physical versus virtual connection.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Uh, I mean, and you further, meaning, I feel like that that debate to have any longer as oppositional is not helpful at all. Right. Right. Um, Mm That those are more and more complementary spaces, mm-hmm. as we can also maybe see in this exhibition, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, that they are they are really operating or sitting next to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's certainly meaning uh, the the pandemic at least for us
1: in our practice really opened our eyes to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing a digital, not a digital a design ethnography class this semester that teach. A team, the whole team of 20 some students are working through what is an ethnographic project together and we brought in a group uh, based at NYU called Terra Incognita and they had done ethnographic research during the pandemic to see how online communities how virtual communities provided support and their big takeaway was also that it wasn't a replacement that the virtual often enhanced the value of the physical and there have to be thought of in tandem this was something that was kind of interesting to me because I was a media study for 15 years and moved over to anthropology about three years ago. It's really funny to hear the anthropologists talk about when everything was shut down during the pandemic, you know, oh no, I guess we all have to learn how to do digital ethnography. Or, and then they were so disappointed that they'd have to go to this lesser context of online connections. But folks in media studies for a long time have known that they're entangled worlds, that it's not uh, a, a duality, that they're inherently kind of connected. But it was just interesting to see the disciplinary
0: yeah, disconnects
1: I mean, about how they regard these, these realms.
0: Yeah, that meaning there is a there is an assumed hierarchy mm-hmm. around in the way uh, uh, and in the way it's approached. Right? Yes. Just kind of, um, to just say that maybe they do different things mm-hmm. and both those things Yes.